I'm glad that you're here today. Um, I had someone come up to me very early this morning. I had only been on campus a few minutes. And uh, I told you, she said, she said, I got here early because I wanted to give my money. I thought, man, does not every pastor in the world want to hear that <laughs> sentence? I want to finish our teaching series that concludes in John chapter 13 this morning. We will break for the holidays, and then after the turn of the year, we will come back and come back to John and finish this gospel uh, in the first months of, of 2023. I've entitled this lesson, Our Best and Our Worst. Because frankly, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time at all, you've probably discovered what so many of us have discovered, and that is that we have great intentions, and we have a desire to live this life that God has called us to, and we want to be serious followers of Jesus. We want to we walk the way He walked. We want to represent well. But we are marked by a sad inconsistency. Well, the enemy wants us to believe that, that that's just you. You just don't get it. You're just not as good at this as anybody else. I think that's why God, by His Spirit, inspired the Apostle Paul to give us a glimpse into his life where he tells us that he says, man, there are times where I don't do the things I want to do. And then there are other times when I end up doing the things I don't want to do. And then with a kind of despairing exclamation, he says, who will salvage me? Who will free me from this body of death? You see, what you need to understand about the Christian life is we are we are a totally unique being, each one of us, those of us who follow Jesus. And what I mean by that is we, we used to be a people owned, operated, defined by sin. We were separated from God by our sin. We had no way to solve that problem in ourselves. It was the very definition of who we were. Now, that's not to say that you have always been as bad as you could possibly be, but it is the fact that before you met Christ, you were as bad off as you could possibly be. But by the same token, we are not yet those people who live constantly and perpetually in the unbroken presence of Jesus, where sin is no longer a consideration, where every tear has been wiped from our cheek, we're not who we were, but we're not entirely who we will be. We are in the not anymore, but not yet time of our existence. And so the reality is that there are days when we walk with Jesus and we, we get just a taste of that life that he's offered us. And we say to ourselves, I am never moving from this spot. 
only to then turn around in the very next moment and get caught up into something that that just makes us despair if we're ever going to get any better at this Christianity thing. But see, the enemy loves to play on our minds that way. He customizes temptation. And for so many of us, temptation is not the whole smorgasbord of things that you can do wrong. It's a customized list of things that appeal to me in particular. That's why we find ourselves so often in a cycle where we make a determination that we're going to live the Christian life and we're going to be what God wants us to be. And then we have this temptation that comes around. And typically it's pretty familiar to us because we've seen it before because we've given into it before. And we give into the temptation and then we hate ourselves. And we say, Lord, I swear I'm never doing that again. And I'm going to turn over a new leaf and I'm going to be a different person only to find that it comes back around and we do it again. We are plagued with the desire, the built-in, hardwired yearning to be everything we were meant to be, everything we were created and redeemed and gifted to be. We have that desire and it haunts us, but we also have this awareness of how far short we fall so regularly it is our best and our worst i want to walk you through these closing verses of john chapter 13 because i want you to see how we face this part of the christian life this struggle to be who we are in christ jesus if you recall where we finished last week uh, judas has just left the room jesus Gives him a, shows him an act of honor. It says that Satan entered into the heart of Judas, and Judas left, and it was night. Verse 31, we're going to finish the chapter this morning, and this is where the story goes. Therefore, when Judas had left, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am still with you a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I want to talk about these verses first. I've called this our glorified Lord. Now, when I read those verses, if, if you responded the way I expected you to, you're like, wow, there's a lot of pronouns there. I can't even understand that sentence. Um, <laughs> this is the way John wrote. It's clearer in the Greek than it is in the English. So go learn Greek. No, I'm, uh, no, just teasing. Here's what he said. Now is the Son of Man glorified. Let's just start right there. Sanctified imagination is the practice not of adding to the story or, or trying to make the story better or more impressive. Sanctified imagination is taking what the, the, the Scripture gives us and trying to put ourselves into the moment so that we can have a sense of how the story is unfolding. It helps me to see things that might not come to my mind if I just read the text. 
And, and, and using a sanctified imagination, as I tried this week to put myself into this, into this moment, there's several places in these verses where I just, I wanted to just try and see how it played out. But I think as I consider it, there must have been in the moments before Judas left the room, there must have been a kind of oppressive atmosphere there. Now, I don't know if the other disciples uh, were, were discerning enough to tell it, but I'm sure Jesus was aware of it because it says that when Judas makes his decision, that Satan came into his heart and he got up and he left. And in my mind, as I look at this story, as Judas gathers his stuff and walks out the door, closing the door behind him, I can almost hear an audible sigh from Jesus. <sighs> and that's when he says it. Whatever else they've talked about in this evening, he waits for this moment and he says, now is the Son of Man glorified. Why? Why in that moment? Well, when Judas made his decision and he got up and left, what, what we know is that the betrayal is now underway. The process has begun, and you can't stop this train once it's on the tracks. For Jesus, though, he wants the disciples to understand the big picture of what's happening here. Because for Jesus, the betrayal is not the point of the, the events that are about to unfold. That's just one of the pieces. There's a bigger picture here. And in the same way that we could say, as Judas left, well, now the betrayal is, is, is there. It's starting to unfold. Jesus immediately frames it this way. Now the Son of Man is glorified. What he means is that process of glorification is coming to him, and it is as certainly underway as the betrayal itself. Now, in these verses, there, there are a lot of pronouns, and you're like, well, who are we talking about? He says, uh, God is glorified in him, and if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. We, can, we could um, diagram this sentence, and we could make sense of all the program, pro, pronouns, but just leave it at this. John has been recording in conversation after conversation after conversation throughout this entire gospel up until now. He has been re recording this same lesson that Jesus came from the Father. He's here to put the Father on display. He's playing out the Father's will. When you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. If you know Jesus, you know the one that sent him. That conversation has happened again and again and again. It doesn't matter if we, if we diagram the sentences so we grammatically match up the pronouns. The sentence means this. Now we see Jesus in all of his godness. And it is about to be on display. Now here's the tricky part of this. In the same way that the betrayal is underway, well now so is the glory, the glo being glorified, that's underway. But what can he be talking about? Because when we think of glory, we tend to think of, of like the throne in heaven. 
We think about, about Jesus wearing a crown, Jesus being recognized as king of the universe. What he's talking about is a perfect example of why Christianity does not make sense to the world around us. Because what Jesus is talking about, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's talking about the cross. But here's the thing. The cross is the definition, apparently, of losing. There is no form of execution in human history worse than crucifixion. You say, no, well, wait a minute, I can, I can think of some pretty bad forms of it. Here's the thing about, uh, about crucifixion. You remember when, when the soldiers took a spear and they jabbed, it, jabbed Jesus into the side? They were trying to see if he was dead because it surprised them that he died in their minds so quickly. Because see what made crucifixion so abominably horrible is that it not only, you, you died from loss of blood and you died from asphyxiation as you could no longer pull yourselves up to allow air to come into your lungs. But the thing about crucifixion was it involved not just unspeakable physical agony, but it involved mockery and abuse from the onlookers. And most people who were nailed to a cross in the, in, in the height of the Roman Empire, it took them days to die. Nobody's ever thought of another way of execution more unhuman, inhumane than that. And yet Jesus, knowing that the cross is right around the corner, it's less than 24 hours away. And he says, now the Son of Man is being glorified. See, you'll never understand Christianity until you can understand that the world, the values of the world, are upside down. Christianity is Jesus coming along and turning the world right side up. Because for Jesus, his glory was the cross. The world says that's a, that's a horrible thing. That's, that's the definition of losing. In fact, Satan himself, you can almost hear a kind of cackling laughter as they take Jesus to the cross. He thinks he's won, only to find out in the moment that Jesus voluntarily gave up his life, Satan realizes the horrible mistake that he's made. Because the cross is not about Jesus or God being defeated the cross is about Jesus voluntarily offering himself in our place to pay a penalty that he didn't owe so that we could be made one with God. Now, here's why that's significant. As Christians, we must never be embarrassed. Not only should we not ever be embarrassed by the cross, but honestly, as a church and as individual followers of Jesus, we've got to be careful that we don't ever sort of get over the cross. Because it is in the cross that we see the glory of God, a glory not only willing to take on a towel and a basin and serve by washing feet, but a, a, a glory willing to lay down life. It was voluntary. Jesus was not the victim of circumstance. He tells them in one of his trials, he says, don't you think I could call down more angels than you can count? I could be out of here in a heartbeat. 
I'm not here because you're holding me. I'm here because this is the only way I can redeem the people that I'm going to call family one day. And he put himself there on the cross and he kept himself there on the cross and he laid down his life because that was his glory. Listen, maybe I think about these things in a, in, in a weird way sometimes, but, but let me tell you, when we get to heaven, the Old Testament is fascinated with visions of God and they always exhaust their language, their vocabulary to try and describe what they see. But since they can't really describe God, the, the descriptions usually have to do with the throne. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, talks about having a vision of God in the temple high and lifted up, and he's seated on a throne, and, and he describes what's around him. Moses and the elders in, 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 the, in, in the, the earliest books of the, of, of the Bible, he talks about meeting with God on Mount Sinai, and he talks about a throne, and he describes the color. It was surrounded with, with a kind of green light, and, and, and he tries to, tries to tell us what he can about the indescribable. The Old Testament is fascinated with the throne, with the idea of God as king. But let me tell you, when my time comes and I, I stand in that throne room, it's not going to be the crown on his head. It's not going to be the throne that he sits on. It's not going to be the scepter that he holds as a mark of power. What I'm going to see is the glory of the Lord who can raise his hands and there are scars in the palms of those hands. Those are my scars that he took on himself. The end of the Gospel of Luke, we have Luke's account of the ascension. But he says there was that semicircle of disciples, 11 left after, after Judas was gone. And Jesus has been showing himself and teaching them for 40 days. And here he says, go to Jerusalem and wait for, for, uh, until the Spirit comes on you in power. And as he begins to ascend, you can imagine the robes of a, of a Middle Eastern man in that day. As he begins to ascend, it says that he lifted his hands. And those flowing sleeves of the robe would have, would have fallen down beneath his elbows. And he said, it says that he blessed them. The last thing they saw as he made his way to the throne was they saw his hands. They saw the glory of a sacrifice that allowed them and us to be washed clean. We have a glorified Lord. When you want to know what, God's, what God is like, you look at Jesus. Paul tells us he is the visible representation of the invisible God. But in this moment... Acknowledging that his glory is on its way. The process has begun. He now gives them what he calls a new commandment. Your Greek lesson for the day is that this phrase, a new commandment, it is written in Greek to, to, put it, uh, to make it clear to the reader that this is an emphatic position in the sentence, meaning this is the important thing that, that, that Jesus wanted them to understand. It says in verse, uh, in verse 33, it says that he's going to leave. He tells them the same thing that he told the Jews, the Jewish leaders in a previous conversation, where I'm going, you can't follow me. And the Jews didn't understand. They said, well, where is he going to go that we can't get to him? 
But he uses that same thing here, and he says, Just as I said to the Jews, now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. But then he immediately says, I'm giving you a new commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, it's fascinating. When he says, I'm going to give you a new commandment, He's not talking about the love part. In fact, if we go back to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, we can see that even in the Old Testament law, we're told to have love toward people. There is something, however, that makes this new. He's not talking here about love for the people of the world. Now, that's a part of who we are as Christians because God loves the people of the world. That's sort of the point of leaving us here. We are, as Paul called us, ambassadors of reconciliation, pleading with men to be reconciled to God. God loves the world enough that he loved them in a practical way. He came in human flesh. He gave his only son so that belief would avoid perishing, but receive everlasting life. But that's not what he's talking about here. What's new about this commandment is he's talking about the relationship that we will have as a family of believers in this thing that would come to be called the church. Now, the reality is, The church is designed as a strategy for impacting the world in this generation, but also the church is designed to be a place where we're made stronger in our ability to follow Christ because we're family. Some of you aren't old enough to remember this, but when I was a kid, uh, churches actually used family language. There was brother so-and-so and and there was sister so-and-so, and that's how they would refer to each other in church. Well, sister so-and-so told me, told me this today, or, or I shook hands with brother so-and-so, he was at the door. We didn't use that language because that was just churchy language. We used it because it was a reflection of an invisible reality, and that is when you become a follower of Jesus, you are adopted into a family. We have relationships that go deeper than just casually being a crowd in the same building at the same time, almost by accident. That's not what's happening here. I don't make a habit of losing church members, but I did lose some church members recently. And their, their remark was, I don't like that every time I miss church, people of Evergreen are calling to find out if something's wrong. Sorry, not sorry. (laughs) If you want to be a part of a so-called church where nobody cares whether you come or or don't come, whether you show up or don't show up, or nobody cares whether you miss or don't miss, I can give you hundreds of addresses that you can go see. But see, this is family. Let me, let me put it to you this way. If you wake up in the morning, you've tucked your kids into bed when they went to bed that night before, and you wake up in the morning and you realize that one of them's missing. He slipped out of the house. She's escaped and run away in the middle of the night. Do you go, well, you know, it was a good run while it lasted. 
It kills me when I see churches act that way. Well, you know, they were here for a while. It was, it was good while it lasted. No, no. What you would do as a mother or a father, your kid is gone and run away in the middle of the night. You will move heaven and earth to find them. Why? Because that's what family does. And that's who we are. He says, you're going to love each other. And it's going to be so obvious and evident that the world is going to take notice of it. There is a brotherhood that we call the church, and it has been created on the basis of the cross. Jesus already put on display this willingness to serve one another earlier in the evening when he took on a towel in a basin and he washed their feet, but now he's talking about his glory at the cross is going to be played out in practical ways as a glory in us as we love one another. Tertullian was one of the ancient church fathers. Barely a hundred years after the Gospel of John was written, Tertullian, living in a pagan city, talks about how the citizens of his city viewed the Christians of his church. He said, they often look at us and say, see how they love one another. And it was no merely superficial love that they were speaking of because then they would go on to say how ready they are to die for one another. You see, the church is not just a place where you kill a couple of hours on Sunday. It's not just a place where you check the box of respectability. This is family. And what marks us as family is the way that we love and care for each other. If you don't feel that, may I suggest that it's time for you to leave the fringes and come into the heart of a people called Evergreen. I don't know why people stay on the edges of a church. I don't know why they keep everybody at arm's length. They don't want to be, they don't want to be held accountable or they don't want to have anybody have expectations. Or Listen, here's the thing. The Christian life is, is completely out of step with the world around us. It was designed to be that way. But let me tell you, the Christian life takes the values of the world and it sets the world right side up. The world thinks that we lose by following Jesus. The only thing we lose by following Jesus are the things that the world says are important. But what we gain is everything in eternity that God says has value. Are you deep in the heart of this church? Are you a people who are here not because it happens to be Sunday morning, but because come hell or high water, you can't be anywhere else. This is home. This is family. See how they love one another. If you're not a follower of Jesus, that, that aspect of who we are may actually make you uncomfortable. It may seem odd that people can be so committed to each other with all of their different backgrounds and all their different... Listen, we live in a generation that because of, uh, of wokeness and political correctness is now working hard to separate us. Separate us by race. 
separate us by political party, separate us by, uh, by economic status, separate us by education, separate us by social media influence. This is the only place left where people of very different backgrounds come together and something transformative happens and we become family. And we have a new commandment that we put on display a practical love and service toward each other. We are a band of brothers in mutual service and that is called the church. Well, we could stay in verses 34 and 35 for a long time, but Peter won't let us. You see, Jesus says in verse 33, where I'm going, you cannot come. And then in verses 34 and 35, he gives this beautiful description of what the people of God are going to be like toward each other, the way they're going to become family, this thing called the church. Apparently, Peter has missed that. I don't know. It, it was, he's been distracted ever since Jesus said, where I'm going, you can't come. Because in what I've called our best and our worst, Peter is going to represent all of us by showing us his sincere intentionality, but also his sad inconsistency. Jesus has been telling them for six months that he was going to leave, that he was going to die, but they didn't understand it. In fact, they probably interpreted it figuratively. Well, he's going to leave. There's going to be a time of separation. He's going to die. That means he's going to lay down, you know, pay, pay a price. of service. I mean, they couldn't bring themselves to fully understand it because, I mean, who could? Die? Resurrection? I mean, these are brand new concepts. Only now, the night before the cross, they're beginning to, it's beginning to finally dawn on them. No, he's talking about actual death. He's talking about being physically separated from us. Can you imagine what that must have felt like? I mean, these are guys, they've, gave, they've given up everything to follow Jesus. They set aside family commitments. They set aside their business interests. They gave up everything to follow Jesus. And now he's talking about not just going away, but going away permanently. And they're, they're distraught. And so while he's been talking about this new commandment, he's been describing this, this thing called the church that, that, that's going to be different than any other human endeavor ever in history. Peter's sitting over in his seat, and, and his mind is, is whirring. And he's just like, he's going to go somewhere that I can't follow? He's going to leave, and I can't go with him? He's talking about going away, and, and he tells me, I can't come? I mean, of all the people in the room, I can't come. And so sure enough, in verse 36, Jesus has given us this great description about how we love one another, and Peter redirects the conversation. It's almost like he said, hey, 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 listen, you blew past that earlier part. I want to, I want to circle back around to that. And verse 36, it says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now but you will follow later. Now that's interesting because he said earlier, I'm going to tell you what I told the Jews. You can't go where I'm going now. But the difference is he told the Jews, you're not going to find me. I'm going to go and you can't follow. Here, 
He's telling these guys something different. You can't follow right now, but later you're going to be where I am. Now that in itself might have been enough, but Peter won't let it rest. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Now this is the sincere intentionality that I'm talking about. Peter looks a lot like us, or, or we look a lot like Peter, in the sense that Peter is absolutely sincere when he says this. I don't think he's just being brash. I don't think he's just bragging in a way that he doesn't mean. And the reason I think that is because just a few hours from now, they're going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the religious leaders are going to bring Roman soldiers, and they're going to come and arrest Jesus. And what does Peter do in that moment? He's going to pull a little sword out, and he's going to cut off the ear of one of the Jews that are present in that crowd. Say, wow, he must have been pretty smooth with the sword to be able to cut off his ear. No, he completely missed. He meant to cut that guy right down the middle of his skull. (laughs) He took a wailing swing, and the guy moved just enough that he only lost an ear. You see, Peter was sincere. He was vastly outnumbered, but in that moment, he was willing to die. See, that's the best of us. That's the part of us that says, I want to follow Jesus. I don't want to be half-hearted in this. I don't, want to, I don't want to rock along and sort of pretend. I want to be a serious Jesus chaser. I want to look like him and talk like him. I want to think like him. He was sincere in his intentions. And you got to give him credit for that. He was willing to die for Jesus. But here's the catch. In verse 38, it says, Jesus replied, will you lay down your life for me? Now, let's just stop right there. Because I hate when this happens. Not to mention any names, but it's usually a spouse thing. I'm going to clean out the garage on Saturday. Are you? (laughs) I'm going to get up early and do the dishes before I go to the office. You will? You know, and there's that kind of snarky, (laughs) you know, I appreciate the nice thought, but we all know that ain't happening. Here's Peter with the best of his intentions, saying, I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus goes, really? You'll lay down your life for me. Don't you hate it when somebody repeats your statement back to you but puts a question mark at the end of it? Oh, you'll lay down your life for me, right. And then he says this. The end of verse 38 is a truly, truly statement. Remember, we've seen this over and over again. Truly, truly, sometimes it's amen, amen. Sometimes in the old language, it's verily, verily. Anytime this double notice is given, it means pay attention because the next sentence coming out of my mouth is critical for you to understand. Peter says, I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus replied, will you lay down your life for me? 
Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Will you lay down your life for me, Peter? Because here's the thing. I'm going to give you an official prophecy. And oh, by the way, four Gospels, most of them scatter the events that are covered. This prophecy about Peter shows up all four times. How'd you like to be Peter knowing that this is going to get into every account? <laughs> Peter, truly, truly, I say this to you. It means listen up and listen carefully. Before you hear a rooster in the early dawn tomorrow, you will betray me not one time, not twice, but three times. Here's where my sanctified imagination kicks in again. Because as I'm pondering, as I'm meditating on these verses this week, I was like, that's devastating. I mean, what does Peter do? Well, I think that this is significant. I don't know what Peter did or didn't do, but I do know that we don't hear Peter speak again until John chapter 18. In other words, all the teaching, the unparalleled instruction that Jesus is going to give to them over the next couple of hours, Peter doesn't say a word. I think that he's devastated. I think he's brokenhearted that Jesus thinks that he would betray him. I don't think that Peter took that as a warning that he needed to be on his guard. I suspect Peter felt like his pride had been unjustly attacked, that he was more sincere than even Jesus knew. The reason I think that is because I know for a fact the number of times that I've made promises to Jesus feeling like Jesus just didn't understand how sincere I am this time. I know I've said I'm not going to do this anymore. I know I've said I want to walk away from that sin or this sin. But, but, but really, Jesus, you don't understand. This time I'm really serious. And sometimes Jesus says, okay. But see, here's the thing. When I do that, just like here when Peter does it, we're doing it in the strength of our own determination. Let me tell you, there's only one way to win the battle against inconsistency in your spiritual life. That is, we have to learn how to do spiritual warfare. And the way we do spiritual warfare, we think of spiritual warfare as being persecution by government authorities or, or attacks for our faith. You want to know where the battlefield of most spiritual warfare is? It's in the way that we think in our brain. That's where the enemy attacks us. And so the way that we fight the battle of spiritual warfare in our brain is we learn, we become adept at learning how to use the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Let me give you a couple of examples. If you are on that cycle where you, you have a customized temptation 
and you hate yourself because every time it comes around, you're going to fight it for a while, then you're going to give in, then you're going to go to Jesus and you're going to tell him you're sorry and you're going to say, I don't ever want to do that again. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to make a new commitment. And then it just cycles back around. If, you're, if you experience that kind of, uh, of cycle of, uh, of sinful behavior in your life, and understand, first of all, if you do, you are not the only person in the room. This is typical spiritual warfare for many of us. Here's what you do. You make a commitment that every time that temptation comes around, you're going to make a commitment to have your Bible handy and you're going to read the Word of God until the pressure of the temptation passes. If it's about going somewhere you shouldn't go, if it's about looking at something you shouldn't look at, if it's about participating in something that you shouldn't be a part of, you make a commitment to read the Word of God until the pressure of the temptation passes. Now here's the thing. The devil is not uh, he's not good, he's wicked, but he's also not stupid. He understands cause and effect. And if he, fi- if he has time to figure out that every time he brings this temptation onto your radar screen, you're going to pull out your Bible and you're going to read the Word of God, guess what he's going to stop doing? He's going to stop bringing that temptation around. Because he'd rather give up that ground, that temptation that's been so productive, he'll give it up rather than have you reading the Word of God. Listen, if you're waking up in the middle of the night with insomnia because your brain is worried about things that are going on and and you've got issues and, and, and you're just going all the time and you can't sleep, pick up the Bible and read until you fall asleep because the enemy would rather let you sleep than to put the Word of God into your mind. You see, it is a sword and we have to become adept at using our weapon Inconsistency is defeated by developing consistency with the right things. Christmas is three weeks from today. What if this morning you said, I'm going to take my Bible. I've got it on my phone. I've got it on my iPad. I've got a pocket copy. I can keep it in my purse. I'm going to take my Bible with me. I'm not just going to read it in the morning before I go to work. I'm I'm going to try and have a daily quiet time, but but I'm going to take my Bible with me. And when I face a temptation to sin, I'm going to have my Bible handy and I'm going to open it up and I'm going to read it. And I'm going to read it until the temptation leaves me. Peter tells us, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. He's not going to fight that battle when you're carrying the sword of the Spirit. Use the Word of God. Make a commitment that you're going to do that for the next three weeks. You're going to have your Bible with you at all times, some form where you can get to the Word of God and you can absorb that. You can take it into your mind. That use of the weapon that is given to us will defeat the pull of those temptations. Christmas will be very different if you can get to Christmas morning and say, God, through Christ, in His Word, is giving me victory over a sin that has plagued me forever. Well, how do we counter that inconsistency? Two ways. 
One is a deep abiding connection to Christ through his word. And the other is a deep abiding connection to Jesus through his church. Are you on the fringe? Just here, you kind of like the atmosphere. You like the people. But you're willing to just sort of keep it all at arm's length. You just want a little dose of Jesus to get you through. Let me invite you to come all the way into the heart of the people called Evergreen. Do life with us. Walk shoulder to shoulder with us. Let Jesus shape you and transform you by the time you spend sharing life with family, brothers and sisters. This morning, I want to, I want to, this is our invitation. Number one, I've already told you, if you need to give, you can come down during this invitation and you can leave your gift. I didn't tell you earlier, some people have asked me about pledges. Uh, timing is an issue, um, especially if it's related to stocks. Sometimes people need to give after the first of the year. Listen, if, if that's you, if you want to give more than you've given or if you can't give until January, let me invite you to just take an envelope and write a number. It's sort of an informal pledge, but if you'll do that, that will allow us to include that number when we total things up so that we can celebrate um, when we come back together. But here's what I really want you to know. This is the start of the Christmas season. Wouldn't you love to start the runway to Christmas by coming, first of all, into a relationship with Jesus Christ? We'd like to introduce you to Jesus. This is always gonna be somebody else's party that you're watching from the outside until you meet Jesus. Can we introduce you? Maybe you know Jesus, but, but you're not a part of this church. Let me tell you, we'd love for you to come and be in the heart of what happens here. Don't, don't come stand on the edges. Come and join us. Stand shoulder to shoulder because our desire is to make the world a different place. Because individually and as a family, we're serious about being Jesus people. We'd love to share with you how you can do that. Just a week from now is our Evergreen 101 class. We'll explain to you how you can come into membership. Maybe you just need, you say, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a member of this church, but I've been sidetracked by a thousand other things. Let me just invite you to come to this holy place and just kneel down and say, Lord, I'm, I'm home. I want to learn how to use your word as a weapon. I want to do battle and quit giving in to sin. I want to be serious about walking with you. I want my intentions to outweigh my inconsistencies. We'll help you do that. Come walk with us. Let me say a prayer, then we're going to stand. You come, our pastors will be here. You come and give your offering. You come and do business with Jesus Christ. Father, thank you in this moment for the reality of your spirit in this place. Father, I pray that, that you'll draw us unmistakably 
to the Lord who is glorified because he took our scars onto his hands and his feet. Father, in this moment, maximize the best of us, minimize the worst of us, and let us look like Jesus Christ as we as we walk through this, this season. Father, let this Christmas be a season that forever changes us as we discover what it means to be among those who live by a new commandment, that we put our love for each other on display and the world sees it and knows that we've been with Jesus. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.